Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. This podcast is designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know, all in 20 minutes. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. If you like what you hear, then please rate and review on Apple or Google Podcasts. Thank you to all of you who have left a review. It's really very much appreciated. You can support our work and the unique content we provide from as little as £5. For more information of how to support us and or to access recommended readings and related blog posts, please go to londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast. And all our guided walks and private tours are bookable online on our website too at londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. As the centenary of the Great Exhibition approached, politicians had begun to ask whether a celebration in the same vein might operate as a tonic to lift the nation's spirits. 1951 Britain was very different from the context in which the Great Exhibition took place. Britain had lost its sense of purpose and place in the world. World War II had sounded the death knell for the days of the Empire, which had been in a phase of deep decline since 1918. British pride in its empire could no longer be sustained in the face of renewed and strident calls for independence. Following the end of the war, a series of independent movements chipped away at the British Empire, leading to the establishment of new states, such as Jordan, Burma and Sri Lanka. In 1947, India, the empire's most prized possession, was petitioned, creating the two new independent states of India and Pakistan. Where the Great Exhibition had been a celebration of the British Empire and its international territories, the Festival of Britain needed to focus specifically on the British Isles. The years immediately following the end of World War II had lost the triumphalist, proud tone of the age of the empire and a general sense of gloom and depression prevailed in public discourses. Post-war Britain was a time of austerity, where rationing had continued, when two million people were unemployed and there was a shortage of foreign currency to buy food from overseas and the traumatic memory of the conflict as soldiers gradually came home and families began to rebuild their lives. In 1947, a festival to mark the Great Exhibition of 1851 was proposed to the House. And I've mentioned the Great Exhibition in episodes 47 and 51. And yes, I do agree, it deserves its own dedicated episode. But I digress. In March 1948, the Festival of Britain office was established, which would be responsible for coordinating festival events around the country. Even before the Festival of Britain had opened, it had been condemned as a waste of money. Sentiments were directed to the budget having better been spent on houses after the destruction of many houses during World War II. The event organisers wanted to do something unique and progressive with the space. 
in order to create an iconic architectural statement that would stand for a new era. In line with his agenda, Hugh Casson, an ambitious architect, was put in charge of the construction and design of the festival site, charged with putting together a team of young architects who would create a modern visual identity for the festival. And this was an important decision because it meant that the festival was, from the very outset, imbued with an entirely fresh visual aesthetic that seemed to indicate the inception of a modern British age. This new festival, with a budget of £12 million, was intended to celebrate Britain as a nation and its achievements, a tonic to the nation, as it were. It was called the Festival of Britain and it was designed to focus British recovery rather than the joys and spoils of empire. The festival was a reminder of the British greatness on its own terms, empire or not. On the 3rd of May 1951, King George VI declared the Festival of Britain open with venues in London and across the country. It was a national exhibition designed with the aim of promoting a feeling of recovery from both world wars. It was a large-scale demonstration of Britain's contribution to civilization, past, present and future in the arts, science and technology, industrialization, and the viability of democracy. Projecting and celebrating a sense of national identity was closely linked to memory, remembering who the British were, which chimed with the national sense of place as the rebuilding of Britain led to rethinking a national sense of place and worth. This public declaration of unity and forward-looking celebration of British achievement was precisely what was needed to reconfigure British identity in the radically altered post-war world. Although it was a national event, the main focus was a 27-acre area on the south bank of the Thames, between Waterloo Bridge and County Hall. Bombed Victorian buildings and railway sidings, which had been left untouched, were transformed into a new public space, which was intended to showcase the principles of design that were featuring the post-war rebuilding of London and the creation of new towns. Over 2,000 locations were used, with local authorities organising events as well as voluntary bodies. Several key projects and activities were made possible by the Exchequer Funds. London locations included the South Bank Exhibition Site, the Exhibition of Science in South Kensington, and the Exhibition of Architecture, Town Planning and Building Research at Lansbury in Poplar. Upon its completion, the South Bank was made up of 22 freestanding pavilions with themes around the land and the people of Britain. It incorporated multiple levels of buildings, elevated walkways and an open plan feel. Exhibitions included themes such as the land of Britain, sea and ships, power and production and the new schools. The Skylon was an iconic 
futuristic vertical cigar-shaped tower held in place by tension cables, which gave it the impression of floating in mid-air. There was even a large dome of discovery, which at the time was the world's largest dome, being 365 feet in diameter. Sound familiar? Today's O2, once known as the Millennium Dome, is also 365 feet in diameter. The exterior was built to resemble the 1951 Dome of Discovery. The dome housed exhibitions on the exciting themes of discovery such as polar regions, the new world, the sea, the sky and outer space, and had an entrance fee of five shillings. It must have been very exciting. All I have is the experience of going to the Millennium Experience um, at the Millennium Dome. I think I paid £18 for, for, for that ticket and uh, was very disappointed when the uh, the body zone was actually closed off as it had actually broken. But I am kind of imagining this whole sense of excitement uh, from Londoners and Brits about looking to a new future. One of the intended outcomes was to cheer everyone up. This public declaration of unity, a forward-looking celebration of British achievement, was precisely what was needed to reconfigure British identity in the radically altered post-war world. The new open space on Southbank had a wide range of places to eat and drink. Restaurants such as the Rocket, the Regatta and the Unicorn. Cafes called The Turntable and The Garden, and also ornamental pools, some illuminated at night. The overall theme of the Festival of Britain was the land and the people, a national display of the interwoven serial story of Britain. And it was a huge marketing campaign, not for the festival, but for the country. Even with the critics' comments, the main festival site on the South Bank managed to attract more than 8 million paying visitors over its five-month run. Upriver from the South Bank, only a few minutes via boat, is Battersea Park, and this was the home to the funfair part of the festival. It included pleasure gardens, walkways suspended in the trees, a water garden and luxury shopping. Its focus was entertainment rather than education, which seemed to be the core purpose of other exhibits, and consequently it was widely enjoyed by large numbers of festival visitors. Well, what is left of the Festival Britain now in London? Much as what was built was temporary, and after the event was dismantled. In both Wales and Scotland, little remains. In London... Some remarkable examples have survived, which is what I'll be sharing with you today. The South Bank? Well, one could argue that the greatest legacy of the Festival of Britain is the stretch of former industrial riverside near Waterloo, and we call that the South Bank now. Since then, it's grown to embrace the London Eye, the BFI and the Tate Modern, the most visited modern art museum in the world. The Royal Festival Hall is one of the only buildings to endure past the end of the summer of 1951. 
this brand new concert hall, designed by Robert Matthew and Leslie Martin, was able to seat 2,900 people. It was constructed using reinforced concrete, luxurious timber and fossilised limestone, creating a modernist feel that was simultaneously organic. The extensive use of glass ensured that the hall was bright and luminous during the day and that it illuminated the wider South Bank site after dark. Particular attention was paid to the acoustics of the auditorium, which were designed to be state-of-the-art. The Festival Hall opened on the 3rd of May 1951 with a concert attended by the royal family to widespread critical acclaim. The dramatic beauty of the hall's interior impressed its early visitors and ensured that the festival would leave a monumental legacy on the South Bank. For some critics, the Royal Festival Hall was seen as too innovative and even certain furnishings in the cafe met criticism for being too gaudy. The Skylon is a name you will see on the South Bank, but you won't be able to see its originator. Adjacent to the Dome of Discovery was the Skylon, a breathtaking, iconic and future-looking structure. It was an unusual vertical cigar-shaped tower supported by cables that gave the impression that it was floating above the ground. Some say that this structure mirrored the British economy of the time having no clear means of support, but the evening before the royal visit to the main festival site, a student is known to have climbed near the top and attached a University of London Air Squadron scarf. Some would have described the Skylon as a functionless structure in the shape of a rocket, but it was an icon for the festival, a sleek, dynamic symbol of an exciting future for Britain. What became of the Skylon is unconfirmed. I have heard that it was demolished in the orders of Winston Churchill, the Labour government commissioned Skylon, which was seen as a symbolism of socialism, and it ended in the Thames. The Skylon may be no more, but it and its neighbours seeded a fascination for pointless iconic buildings. I have already mentioned the Millennium Dome, um, and that offers a nod to the festival's Dome of Discovery. Um, one could argue Anish Kapoor's acceleromittal orbit, nicknamed the Helter Skelter, at the Elizabeth Park, displays the same Skylon-style space-age name and aspirations. One of the most popular attractions at the Festival of Britain's South Bank site was the Telekinema, a 400-seat state-of-the-art cinema operated by the British Film Institute. It could screen films, 3D films and large-scale television. And it was here that many visitors saw their first ever television pictures. After the festival closed in September of that year, the telekinema became the home of the National Film Theatre. But this building was demolished in 1957 when the National Film Theatre moved to the site it still occupies, still on the South Bank Centre now. The Festival of Britain was one of the first occasions where many women artists and designers had opportunities to take part. The famous sculptor Barbara Hepworth received two important public commissions. 
Turning Forms, which was a motorised abstract piece made of reinforced concrete and painted white and 84 inches high, which is just over two metres, and that was commissioned by the Festival of Britain authorities. In 1952, it was moved to Marlborough Science Academy in St Albans, and in October 2020, was moved to a sculpture conservation studio for major conservation work. The second commission was called Contrapuntal Forms and it's a sculpture made out of Irish blue limestone and was 120 inches high, so that's just over three metres, and was installed at the Dome of Discovery and commissioned by the Arts Council. In 1953, the Arts Council presented contrapuntal forms to the new town of Harlow in Essex and it's sited in Glebelands in Harlow now. One of the centrepieces of the festival was a new commission by the Arts Council for the artist Henry Moore. It became to be known as one of the great triumphs of his career. It was called Reclining Figure and was the first large reclining figure Moore had made in bronze. It now resides at the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art in Edinburgh. However... The original plaster sculpture from which the bronze was cast was given as a gift after Moore's death to the Tate Gallery in 1978, along with 35 other sculptures. Commissioned by the Festival Design Group, the sculptor Frank Dobson created a work on the theme of leisure, titled London Pride. The budget didn't run to bronze, so the models were cast in plaster and finished in gunmetal. And the finished work was originally erected at one of the entrances to the Royal Festival Hall on London's South Bank site. And at the end of the festival, London Pride remained in storage until 1986, when at the behest of Dobson's widow, the Arts Council arranged for them to re recast in bronze for a permanent public sighting. The sculptures were unveiled again on the South Bank in September 1987 on a new slate platform on Queen's Walk adjacent to the National Theatre. So perhaps this is the piece of art closest to its original spot. Another contender for this prize is Peter Laszlo Perry's Sunbathers. It was located on the wall at the station gate welcoming visitors to the festival as they arrived from Waterloo Station. The sculptor had been considered lost, but was rediscovered at a London hotel. The hotel owners had bought it at an auction in the 1950s. Historic England launched a campaign to restore the sunbathers and get it back on public display, which saw them unveil it in 2020 at Waterloo Station, close to its original home. With it being such a monumental event, why has the Festival of Britain been largely forgotten? This could be in part due to the immediate dismantling of festival infrastructure in October 1951. Let's not forget that the Festival of Britain was vast and not really managed centrally, uh, despite the official focus on London, and that may have contributed to it being forgotten as well. If it had been a high point in post-war national life, it was quickly replaced in public memory by the accession of Elizabeth II and the excitement and preparations for the coronation in June 1953. Was the Festival of Britain a success? Well, a new style and tone was set for the second half of the 20th century. A new visual aesthetic of the festival presented the optimism that would accompany the baby boomer generation. 
You could argue that the same visual aesthetics had a profound impact on planning, architecture and development in London during the 50s and the 60s. And even now, the South Bank is the home for arts and culture within London, with the South Bank Centre promoting a broad cultural programme of events and attractions. And so post-war Britain began to revive itself, focusing on domestic regeneration rather than the old ideas of empire and creating a new sense of hope for the nation's future as it emerged from the shadow of war. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us and I hope to see you on a London guided walk very soon.